All right, well, so welcome to Dominion Church. I'm so grateful you're joining us. If you're joining us on Facebook, YouTube, like and share it so that we can get in front of more people, so we can bless more people. We're starting, I guess, a new series today, um, and we got a little graphic for it there called The Rorschach God, The Rorschach God, and uh, underneath it, there's a, well, it's gone now, but uh, underneath it, there you go, (laughs) Uh, underneath the image, this is actually from Psalm 50, Uh, this is during a time where David is in prophetic song, and he starts singing the word of the Lord, and one of the lines that God says is, you thought I was exactly like you, Uh, and so that's what we're going to lean into uh, over the next, I don't know, several opportunities that we have to be together. And so we're just going to jump into this. I want to start with a quote here uh, that, uh, you know, I, for some reason I thought it was one of, these, one of these French philosophers that said it, but then as I dug into it, uh, I realized that we don't actually know who the author is of this actual quote, but it's so good and so appropriate. Uh, God created man in his image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. And, and so uh, th- that's a weighty... That's a weighty quote right there. So God created us in his image, and because we're gentlemen, we return the favor. And so, so much of the God that we see uh, looks like a reflection of us. And and so that's what I want to lean into. So first, we're talking the Warshak test. So let's put our thinking cap on here for a minute. It's hard enough to say. Uh, Just just say it five times fast. Warshak. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, what is the Warshak test? Well, it's, it's a projective psychological test in which subjects' perceptions of ink blots are recorded and then analyzed using psychological interpretation, complex algorithms, or both. Um, in short, people tend to project what they've been through onto the images. And then they pay people lots of money to tell them why they think that. Uh, and so that's essentially what it is. So like the image we have for the message. You can see that when I look at it, I, I kind of see kind of like a bird or maybe a butterfly. You may see something different. So psychologists would say, well, you're seeing through your experience, you're, you're projecting something onto that by what you've been through. If you've, if you've had a, a, a decent life and it's been okay, maybe you do see something positive. If you've been through a lot of abusive things, maybe you see something negative. Do you get what I'm saying? And so now let's talk about God for a minute. So much of the God that I would say especially, not exclusively, but especially the Western church has offered to the world, he actually looks like us a lot of times. You know, uh, I've done a lot of work in the nations, and I hear it over and over again. You know, man, one of the things that has done us more harm than good is the Western evangelical movement, right? Right? where they come in and they preach a Western version of the gospel, and then we try to imitate what we see, but it doesn't make sense to us culturally. It's not even what our people believe. But to get the... I feel like I'm talking too heavy right now. Are you all okay? But to get the money and to get the support, we have to sign up for, for the message. And, and so we need to start reclaiming the character and nature of God. That's going to be the purpose of what we're going to be talking about. And so Psalm 50, verse 21, if you want to go and read Psalm 50 sometime, I would encourage you to. But what I find especially interesting is some of those verses that precede verse 21. Again, if you can imagine with me, you're actually reading a song. Uh, and, and, and so if you can, you can imagine that. And then David, as he tends to do in the Psalms, um, he will 
kind of flow in and out, ebb in and out. Oftentimes, it's not even the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's his own heart. It's his own frustration. And then you can tell when a gear will shift, and all of a sudden he's back in the Spirit. And you know what? God allows that. Hey, be, be you. Don't be somebody that you're not. But I love this. So you start going down this list, and it's like, you hate my instructions. You cast out my words. Um, you, see, you see a thief. You, you're adulterers. Come on, you use your mouth for, for evil. You harness your tongue for deceit. You testify and slander against your brother. All these terrible things, right? And then it gets to verse 21, and God's like, you did all this stuff, and I was silent. You thought I was exactly like you. I think that's so interesting. So it's, I think it's interesting that people begin to live out more than you know, we live out of our perception of who we believe God is. And American church especially, we're, I think we're the best at it. Can I be honest with you? Because, you know, Jesus in our gospel, I mean, he literally, he bleeds red, white, and blue. Did y'all know that? Like, he, he wraps himself in the American flag because he's a patriot. Now, listen, I don't, I don't want to pick any fights today. Does Jesus love America? Absolutely. He doesn't have to be American to love America, okay? He loves the people just as much as he loves the people of Afghanistan, just as much as he loves, right, the people of the Orient. So he doesn't pick sides in the way that we want him to, right? And so, but if we're not careful, the God that we offer the world looks like the God of our own making. It's funny, all of a sudden, our enemies, hear this, becomes his enemies. Have you ever noticed that? Well, so when we pick a fight, well, God's on our side. Well, what, what happens if God's with them? Then what do we do? It's, well, that can't be because, you know, America's, we're a Christian nation, whatever that means. Are you okay? I'm, okay. I'm, I didn't mean to pick fights today. I'm sorry, guys. First time, it's, okay. All right. He said bring it, so that's what we'll do. Okay, so let's get into the notes a little bit. When I get off notes is when I get in trouble. Uh, so, so Jesus taught that all scripture is about him and that he is the life of scripture. You see that in John 5, 39 and 40. I don't have a lot of these references to pull up, but you can jot them down or you can go back and watch this. So curiously enough, Jesus immediately went on to tell the Pharisees that they were incapable of accepting this truth despite the fact they had studied scripture diligently. And the reason, Jesus said, is because they did not have the love of God in their hearts, John 5, 42. So is it possible, can I, I wanna, I'm going to ask you some questions, you don't have to answer them, but is it possible to know the Bible and not love God? Is it possible to know the Bible, be saved, and be a jerk? I'm just, I, okay. <laughs> Okay, again, I've been in and around ministry most of my life, and I've met a lot of amazingly gifted people. I mean, people that can prophesy up one side and down the other, have you floating on cloud nine, but you wouldn't want to eat lunch with them because they don't tip well, they're mean to their server. Are you, I know this is too much right now. So he said, okay, so there's actually a disconnect. You guys are going after knowledge, and I'm going after love. And, and, and your mind can never go where your heart's not willing to first lead. Not in the kingdom anyway. Outside of the of kingdom shift and paradigm, you, you can think your way through anything. 
But inside of kingdom realities, righteousness, peace, and joy, and Holy Ghost, your heart's got to lead the way. That's just all there is to it. So clearly discerning how all Scripture points to Jesus requires more than diligent study. Hey, listen, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I've done all that. I've done the Old Testament surveys, all, the New Testament. And while it's, it has a purpose, it's so boring. I mean, seriously, it is. And you guys would be like, man, you're, you do, you're in ministry and you're a pastor. I mean, I'm telling you now, it's so boring. Um, because it's not revealing to us the heart and nature of God, right? You, you can only get that clear image through the person of Jesus anyway. Now, I'm not saying we discount the old, but when you can start to find the image of God in the old, it makes the old really come alive. Because you can actually see the crucified Christ throughout the Old Testament, which is amazing. It really is. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God's love. And only those who have a heart to embrace and trust this love will be able to discern how it's reflected in all Scripture. So again, I want to make sure I'm going on the record. We're not throwing away anything, but we do need to, we need to go back. We need to re-examine, redefine, and see if we can discover the heart and nature of God through it all, because we can. Um, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. The primary point of Scripture is the self-revelation of God, the self-revelation of God. So if it's not bringing revelation of who God is, we've got to go and examine it and figure out what's going on. And especially, for me, it's very bothersome if I read something and then I use it as leverage or ammunition to help me kind of trench into my point so that I can be a persecution or, you know, a voice against somebody else. Well, then you, we, we've weaponized the gospel if we're not careful, you know? And I'm so tired of weaponizing. It's, it's good news, right? Dan and I talk about this often. He said, it is so weird how bad our good news is, right? It's like we just forgot the simplicity of the gospel, right? Oh. <laughs> so along similar lines, because the Pharisees were constantly confused by Jesus, he at one point asked them, why is my language not clear to you? He immediately answers his own question, saying, because you are unable to hear what I say. That's John 8, 43. Can you imagine literally hearing the words, but not understanding what's being said? That was the veil that was over the Pharisees. Because, again, they had elevated Scripture to a place that Jesus was supposed to fill. In other words, you studied the scriptures, you thought eternal life was in them, but you didn't know that they all pointed to me. I'm actually quoting some verses to you. They all pointed to me, but you didn't receive me. And I'm the point of all this. Wow. So now, Jesus wasn't obviously saying that the Pharisees were deaf. Rather, Jesus was pointing out that these religious leaders were unable to grasp his speech. Right? As Jesus elsewhere taught, when people's hearts become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, Matthew 13, verse 15. So, again, a rhetorical question, is it possible for Jesus to speak into your life, but you can't hear his voice? Because what you're hearing is through a muddled and distorted and shadowed image of who you believe God is, Jesus is trying to reveal someone to you that is completely the opposite of what you've always believed. And because this is always our greatest problem, 
instead of actually fleshing it out and allowing our thought processes to be changed, we entrench our position. And I just want to tell you guys, God does not need you to fortify your position. You know, uh, I, I, I said this a few weeks ago, I think when I was out ministering in Boise, I said some of us, and I did this a lot when I was 17, 18 years old, I was going through Christian apologetics and how to defend the word of God and all this stuff. And my mentor at that time, he pulled me aside and said, son, I love you, but you, you don't have to defend God. <laughs> He's a big boy. <laughs> he, he doesn't need you defending him. And you know what's hilarious? Back then, the stuff I was defending him over, I wouldn't defend him today about it because I realized it wasn't even him, Right? When you're trying to justify violent images, God wiping out humanity, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, but, but Jesus is the perfect image. Wait a second. Are you okay right now? I know I'm all over the map. So, so we use the cross to look into the past, but you can also use the cross to look into other texts. Even in the New Testament, you still need to see Jesus in the texts. And the one that really comes to mind, and you talk about a book that's been weaponized in the Gospels, the book of Revelation, right? So look at just this simple shift here in thinking. The Western church uses Revelation to say it's going to be an apocalyptic Armageddon where God's going to kill a third of all humanity to satiate his wrath. Jesus says um, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, Just come on, there's a seat at the table for you. That's like, wait a second. So one of those is reflecting the character and nature of God, and one of them looks like the Rorschach God, reflecting us. We thought he was like one of us. We thought the way that God destroys his enemies is the way we destroy our enemies. But actually, the way God overcomes his enemies, and they're only enemies in their minds, God has no enemies, uh, is he overcomes evil with good, He, he, he overcomes with love, Um, At surface level, it looks like losing. At surface level, it looks like laying down your life for your friend. That's how the kingdom wins. So if you need a win, that's how we check it off. Last Sunday, we're talking the practicality of the gospel. Okay, how do I know that the practicality of the gospel is starting to be awakened in my life? Um, You love and embrace your enemies. Oh, man, I wanted like a deeper revelation than that. I don't have anything deeper for you. That's what Joseph modeled. That's what Jesus modeled. You want to know, hey, I'm really pressing in the kingdom of God. You're loving and embracing your enemies, right? You're inviting them to the table. Come on, time to eat. Let's lay down our swords. I don't even know where I got this sword from. Are you okay? Son, I don't even know where sons and daughters of God get our swords from. We shouldn't even have them. They should be, they should be plowshares at this point. Are we okay, right? All right. So only after Jesus' resurrection... Did the disciples believe that he fulfilled all scripture or the words he had even spoken? Did y'all realize that? See, we give, again, 2,000 years removed, we have this very romantic lens through which we view a lot of the biblical characters. And the disciples are some of those guys. Now, Peter, you know, because he just messed up so much, we can kind of discern Peter. But none of them believed him, not truly believed Jesus. And I'll help us out here. Okay? So like most Jews of the time, Jesus' disciples expected a military Messiah. Did you know that's what, the, that's what creation was expecting? They thought, based on all the prophetic utterances throughout the Old, throughout the Old Testament prophets, they thought for sure this guy's going to be the baddest dude of all bad dudes. 
He's going to split the sky. He's going to lay to waste our Roman oppressors. You talk about the year of Jubilee, but while they're cheering in the front, I mean, blood is being shed in the background. That's what they were expecting. Jesus shows up as a baby. What in the How is this baby going to do any of the things we've been expecting? Babies don't go to war. Babies aren't even threatening. I mean, they eat and they fill their diapers. And, oh, man. So, of course, this can't be the Messiah because we had an idea of who God should be. Again, a God that looked like them. And then, never mind, as Jesus matures into his ministry and you get into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he's saying so many things that are completely counterintuitive to everything. Oh, you want a revolution? This is what it looks like. When someone slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. If they take from you, give what they take and offer more. I mean, it's like, what in the world is going on here? We've got to kill this guy. We, we, this makes no sense to us. Uh, and usually anytime. This is humanity's default. When we encounter Jesus authentically, our first desire is to kill him. Did you know that? Because we are so offended by the image of God. Not that his image is offensive. Our sensibilities are offended. Because, no, he, he can't be that good. He can't be that loving. And you mean to tell me that he has no fight to pick with anybody? That doesn't even sound real. We need to crucify God. Right? I, I was receiving texts this morning, some friends of mine, you know, that are, are ministering in different places around the country. It's so honored to bring the word, and they're sharing little things. And today, my little admonition was, just remember, if the gospel we preach is too good to be true, that's probably an indication we're on the right track. That's probably an indication, Right? So when Jesus starts talking about his need to go to Jerusalem to be arrested, beaten, killed, it went in one ear and out the other. His, his disciples did not believe it. You know, and, and Peter, again, we can always discern Peter. Peter even objected to this, like, why are you even talking like this? I don't, this makes no sense. Just stop talking like this. And, and, and so, <laughs> but even he clearly forgot about it. You look at Matthew 16, 21 and 22. So even, even when Jesus is arrested, beaten, and killed, just as he said, by the way, they were totally shocked. Can you imagine? For years, he's telling them, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And when it happens, oh, I can't believe it happened. Oh, no. So Jesus, he, he comes back. He rises from the dead. Just as he said, they were shocked even more. So first he said, they're going to kill me. They didn't believe it. They're shocked when he dies. He tells them, I'll come back. When he comes back, they're shocked that he came back. At this point, Jesus has an amazing track record. And they're just like shocked every time. What in the world is going on? And so only when the dust had settled and their eyes had been opened, could they recall that Jesus had been telling them this all along. And then, thankfully, because this is the heart and nature of Jesus, he invites them to the message, the ministry of reconciliation. And so much of what is written in the New Testament reflects the message that they themselves did not receive initially. Right? So again, leaning into the Rorschach God, the God that looks like us, we thought he was one of us, just like us. See, what, what people see and hear 
is strongly conditioned by what they expect to see and hear. Again, I, I don't want to pick any fights today. Well, maybe I do, but in love, is, I don't know. Got to get better verbiage for it. But I remember, and my, my dad used to talk about this often. He said, when you focus on adversity, when you focus on war, when you focus on spiritual warfare, whatever, whatever labels you want to use, isn't it amazing how it's like you start wrestling with stuff? You start having opposition. You start finding devils behind every bush, whatever. <laughs> because it's interesting. Because I expect it, I start to see it. Because I expect opposition, I see it. Because I expect warfare, all of a sudden I feel like I'm at war all the time. And so we've got to change our perspective. We've got to change what we're focusing on. I don't know about you guys. I won't make the decision for you. But I want to press into these type of images. When I see him, I'll be like him. When I awaken, I awaken his likeness. Right? Um, when, when you look into the eyes of the Lord, everything else dims everything. And you see him for who he is. That is what we are called to see, and He is who we are called to perceive. See, a lot of us, we are wasting our energy trying to perceive things that don't even look like Jesus. You know, a dear friend of mine years ago talked about discernment. True discernment has nothing to do with darkness. It has to do with light. Because it takes nothing to discern darkness when dark things are happening. But the gift of discernment is seeing light in the midst of darkness and calling forth the light. Right? Right? Y'all, you've heard me share this story before. It's worth sharing again. Uh, there was this time I was flying into this area. I can't remember the city where I was flying into. Pastor picks me up, super excited, and I, I got a question for you. Okay. I always ask the people that come in when you were flying down, what, what spirit did you sense over our region? Like, and I was like, what principality? Because what, we're, we're very curious. We, we dig into all this. And I just turned to him, I said, well, you know, I'm glad you asked. When I was flying in, I, I know, I felt it in the spirit. The ruling spirit, the ruling principality and power over your region is Holy Ghost. And he was so disappointed. Like, well, praise God, I, that doesn't help us. Well, I thought it was good news, <laughs> you know. So what are you discerning, you know? Along the same lines... People are only able to receive the truth about God to the degree that their innermost hearts are aligned with His character. If you believe that God is vengeful, it's funny how we start looking for vengeance. If you are sure that God's a warlord, all of a sudden we justify war. If you're sure that God withholds, then it's easy for us to withhold. Why? Because we reflect the image of God we most believe in. We do. And then God, because it's his character and nature, he's self-sacrificial. I know this is tough. He bears that image. And in doing so, he becomes crucified in our lives. What is the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross except being misunderstood, being misrepresented, bearing the sin of the world on himself? So when you look on the cross, even though we see this marred image, we see less of the image of Jesus and we see more of the image of humanity. That's what we see on the cross. That's man at his best, man at his worst. It shows us what we're capable of. The worst sin humanity can commit, and we're good at it, deicide. God, right, being killed by us. Yeah. The good news is that John proclaims that when Christ appears, we will be like him. 
for we will see him as he is. I got to pause right there. I don't think this is just, um, you know, a fancy way of saying things and messing with our, our, our way of understanding verbiage. As he is, not as we want him to be. When you see the authentic Jesus for who he is, that's the only way you can become like him. You can't become like an image of who you think he is. Right? I thought he was like one of us. Which is why all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2. While all who are in Christ have had the veil over our minds taken away, and therefore we can actually contemplate God's glory. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 18. I've got a lot of verses. But even with that being said, we still, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So let me stop right there. So let's say for a moment the image of God is a mirror. What does a mirror produce? The image that stares into it. So if when you look at God and you see an image that doesn't look like God, where does the image come from? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to trick you. If you look into the image of God and he's reflective and you don't see the, the character and nature of God, what image are you seeing? Your image. Now, over time, it begins to change. Thank you, Lord. Over time... Over time, our hearts begin to mature, and we begin to grow in love. And then before long, you start to see the same image. Now, I'm not saying you're God. Don't, don't put words in my mouth. But what I'm saying is we carry his nature. We carry his DNA. We look like our father. I ran across a quote today. I can't remember it verbatim, but I'll paraphrase it. And it says that when, when the father talks about the body, it's, it's, the same, it's like parents pulling out pictures of their own kids. Right? And so when we talk about the body of Christ, that is literally God showing pictures of his family. Right? And he's so proud of his family. But then, you know, you, you flip open a, one picture and I don't, who is that? I don't, like, I don't like dad at all. Right? It doesn't mean they're not family. It means they're, they're maturing in their image. Are you okay? Hmm. See, for too long, see, we, we talk about Greater love has no one than this than laying down his life for his friends. Religion tries to get us to ask this question, who are the friends? And, and we forget the love. Greater love has no one than this than a man lays down his life for his friends. Maybe if we could just accept that everyone's God's friends and, and we're just seeing his love mature in each person and the role that we can play. Did you know you can play a, a role in helping people mature in love? Well, how do I do that? Uh, love them. Right? Love Show them what agape is. What other-centered, self-sacrificial, one-way love truly is. And I get it. It's one of the hardest things for us to talk about and to imitate. One-way love. No strings attached. That's agape. In other words, God loves us even if we don't return the love. Right? Otherwise, it's not love. And, and it can't be self-love because self-love's not agape. Okay, I, I can't get off on that rabbit trail. But when the process of our transformation into Christ-likeness is completed, we will finally have the capacity to grasp Christ in all of His beauty. And it's only because we shall be like Him 
that we will finally be able to see him as he is. And so, again, there, there's, there's so much more I could say, but we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to take much longer here. There were, there were other examples I wanted to give, but we've got time. So when you see me up here, we're going to be going back to the Rorschach God because we're going to talk about images, you know. I mean, I, I could give you one example if it'll help us kind of to wrap this up, this, this thought for today. I was, I was contemplating Moses, doing some study on Moses. I think I was sharing this with Dan this week. We hang out a lot, so he lets me just kind of be a sounding board for a lot of this stuff. And um, I said, have you ever noticed... If you go back and read the Old Testament, it was only Moses. He's the only person that actually said God told him to go and kill people. He was the only person. Everyone else after him, they said, we honored what Moses said. So that's the only, okay, again, just go read it. I'm not trying to make you think anything. I'm just telling you you're free to think. I'm not telling you what to think. And so, so before Moses hears this, God has already shared his plan for how to drive out the Canaanites and, and all the ites. Have you ever known, do you ever see his plan? His plan, I will, I'll drive them out by hornets and, and, and animals. So basically, it's going to be like this inconvenience. And, and over time, they're going to get drawn out. And then things get a little worse because it says they begin to defile the land. But God even still says, no, but it, we're, I'm, I've got it. We're going to work on this. And then all of a sudden, Moses says, God told me it's time to start killing people. Yeah. I want to I lay a question at your feet. So we discover in Jesus that God has never changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're told that Jesus is the exact image and the perfect representation of God. So first of all, can you imagine Jesus telling someone, yeah, go kill them. It's, it's, I'm, my patience is done. Go destroy them all. Okay, if, if, if Jesus wouldn't say it, then God won't say it because... Again, one and the same, okay? Did God change his mind? Was his original thought, you know what? I'm going to drive them out. It's going to take some time. It's going to require some patience. But we can get this taken care of. And then all of a sudden, no, kill them all. So one, I would submit, is a glimpse at the authentic character and nature of God. The other looks like a God that's being reflected by someone else's understanding. Okay? Now, I'm not, again, I know the questions you're being asked right now. Well, what do we do with Scripture? Can we trust it? Of course you can. You can trust it to serve its primary purpose, which is what? The self-revelation of who God is. If Scripture does not reveal to us who God is, if it doesn't point to Him, right? So then Jesus can bring us the full, unfiltered display, then there's not a whole lot of good to it. Is not. It's confusing. It, you know, I've, I've, there are quotes I could share with you. I mean, the Old Testament in particular, they say it's created more atheists than any other text. Because people can't reconcile a God that we say is unconditional love and at the same moment wholesale destroys people, orders genocide and all kinds of terrible things. You know? And the church hasn't reconciled it either. Right? And so we need to allow Jesus to inform our image of who God is. And in doing so, shows us the authentic image that we're supposed to reflect as well. So I don't want to project my image of who I think God is onto him. I want to allow Jesus to reveal the image. 
I want to see the image through the person of Jesus. And in doing so, we can have confidence in the character and nature of God as is seen through the person of Jesus. Okay? So if y'all can hang with me, this is probably the, the difficult point of the spear, if it were. Uh, and, and then our sessions kind of following this, we'll get into some more examples to help us out. And there's lots of them, you know? One more. Can I do one more and then we're done because I'm taking way too long. Um, Samuel is, is a great example. Samuel in the Old Testament is probably the most violent of prophets. And, and I asked this rhetorical question, did he have a violent streak? Because I'm curious. It seems, like, it seems like he did because anyone that he kind of was their right-hand guy. So Saul was the first king, super violent. And then when Saul's out, David comes in, super violent. It's like this ministry worked together. Violent prophet, violent king, right? And, and they kind of just played off each other. I don't know how to explain it. So here's, here's an example. 1 Samuel 15, 20, uh, 15, 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is just like Megan and I just ministering to these precious people over here. I hear the Lord saying. I sense, I sense the Lord saying this. Here goes Samuel. Thus says the Lord. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, children and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wow. Okay. There's another example. If you keep going in 1 Samuel 15, you find out this guy's a gem of a guy. I mean, he literally takes a sword and goes and hacks Agag to pieces himself. There's a, after this, he goes to the city, and the elders rush up to the gate to meet him, and it says they meet him in, with fear, and they ask him, have you come in peace? The dude, wow, right? Now, what image is that reflecting? Does that look like God revealed through Jesus that commands wholesale slaughter, men, women, children, and animals? Or does that look like a different image? It looks like, for me, a crucified God bearing a sin image because Samuel thought he was capable of doing such things, right? But now, this is out of Samuel's own mouth a few verses later. So this is said, and then he prophesies this. This is beautiful now. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord at Gilgal. And Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings? Does he delight in sacrifices as much as in obeying him? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Huh. The same prophet. One says, kill everything. The next breath, does God delight in such things? He just wants obedience. And obedience to me lends into relational leverage. Right? I love him, therefore I want to obey him. So one side of his mouth, kill the animals. The next side, God doesn't even want that stuff. You get into Jeremiah, he does the same stuff. He'll prophesy calamity, destruction. He even says at one point, and I'm done. I'm so off the map right now. I'm sorry, guys. Forgive me. Uh, at one point, he says, don't let mercy or compassion stop you from destroying families and smashing them to pieces. Could you imagine a prophetic word like that today, streaming on Facebook? Hey, guys, I heard the Lord say this. Go. And then later, Jeremiah is prophesying, and he says, I never instructed your fathers in the wilderness concerning sacrifice. 
wait. Destroy family, smash them together. Never instructed your fathers in the wilderness concerning sacrifice. It sounds like one is the image of God as we see through Jesus. The other looks like a different image. Now, that prophetic word is particularly difficult because all of a sudden we have to question the whole sacrificial system. Because he said, I never instructed your fathers in the wilderness concerning sacrifice. And why is that a fair question to ask? You go to Genesis, go straight to Genesis. The principle of first mention, the first sacrifice ever provided, God did not ask for it from Adam and Eve. He provided it for Adam and Eve. So God tells us up front, I don't want sacrifice. I will give sacrifice, but I don't want it. And you know what? Because he's the God who never changes, the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's never wanted sacrifice. Abraham discovered that. Y'all heard me tease this. Y'all looking at me like a cow at a new, a new fence here. Like, what in the world is this thing? Abraham thought God wanted Isaac. And then Abraham discovered he didn't. And then we're told Abraham discovers the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. God is my provider. So God, all throughout the Old Testament, is trying to distance himself from these images we have built. And, and our images make him fit with the pagan gods of antiquity. That is not who he is. Anything you think you know about God that doesn't look like Jesus, you're missing something, and you have every right to question it, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And if it means that I end up loving more, well, then I'm willing to take that as a casualty of, of whatever. You know, if, if more people leave, that, whatever. I, I'm done. I'm so done. Dan, you got to help me wind this thing down. Megan normally would be telling me to wrap it up, but she's not there, so you can blame her. Um, <laughs> when, when, I, when I was up in Boise, so we did four services o- over the course of the weekend, and there were people that stuck with me the whole weekend, and we were going through themes like this. But Sunday, there was a, the Sunday crowd who had not been there Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. And you could tell this was, this was getting deep. This was getting tough. And finally, I said, you know what? Okay, let's just say it this way. When we all get to heaven, and, you know, we get to those pearly gates. I don't know why there's pearly gates up there. And I don't know why Peter's there. I guess he's, he's still paying for his denying Jesus three times. I, I'll be the clerk, I guess. I'll, I'll check people in. It's my penance or whatever. You know, you get to Peter, and he says, you know what, son? Man, you just love too much. Come on in. Come on in. I think I could live with that. I mean, the worst case would be, what in the world were you thinking? Like, you were so off. You said God was loving. I don't know where you got that he's all, he's all love because he is wrathful and vengeful. You missed it, but come on in. It's, it's, I mean, that's going to be the worst case. So I can live with you love too much because at least in my heart, that looks like Jesus. Jesus as I know him in the moment. Amen. So let's put aside the inkblot tests and let's allow Jesus to inform us as to who God is. And we'll keep exploring that in our our times together throughout this year, okay? All right. Well, Lord, we just thank you for this time today, Lord. I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I just thank you that um, you're good. And, and, And we know that because of who you are as Jesus. We know this. Um, that Jesus was not just a 33-year experiment in humanity. That incarnation was a forever joining of God and humanity. If you can see this now by the eyes of your spirit, 
Not only are we forever marked by God, but God is forever marked by us. And I'm so grateful that in coming as one of us, you knew how to redeem us. You knew how to change our mind about you. Come on, the message of reconciliation is not that Jesus came to change God's mind about us because he hated us and wanted to destroy us. No, he came to, to help us change our mind about him. He's always been good. He's always been loving. He's always been a giver. He's always gracious, full of mercy, never leaves you or forsakes you. He is your father. You can trust him. Forever joining two things together that shouldn't go together. There's God on one side, full of love and joy and grace and humility, other-centered agape. And then we bring to the table our anger, frustration, fear, anxiety. And he says, yeah, I'll take it. Sounds good to me. Lord, I'm so grateful that now you have the church. And this isn't the first time the church has been in a place like this, but I'm so grateful that the tide is beginning to, to, to turn back towards the church, searching out the heart and nature of God. We're so done with religious construct. We're so done with just trusting someone to tell us what God is like, but not showing us his heart. I'm reminded of that. It's an it's a old line from a musical. It said, don't just tell me that you love me, show me. Don't just tell me that you love me, show me. And so, Lord, I just thank you for these things. I, I pray this has been an encouragement. At the very least, it challenges us to think differently, to, to see you differently, to see you in just a small, just a little bit more beautiful than you already are. It's, it's amazing to think about. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love for you to come be a part of one of our corporate gatherings. We meet here at the Maravan Center, 1.30 on Sundays. Um, there's lots of places to eat. Come grab some lunch. Come be with us. We'd love to, to lay hands on you, to pray for you, to minister to you. Um, there's room. There's room for you here at Dominion. All right, God bless you. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next time.